always like to give an update for the Rock Hill Church, um, Grace Covenant Church in Rock Hill. And I go up there twice a month uh, to preach, and uh, Mark does the other Sundays. And then, of course, uh, David Spears, my friend and pastor, goes up uh, every Sunday with Miss Pat, who's 87 years old and plays for three services on Sunday. So she's a blessing just to have her involved in that. But this past Sunday, we accepted three more families into the church uh, there. And uh, I think, honestly, with what I saw there Sunday, they have more children there now than we do. There is a lot of children in that church. Now, you know Mark has nine. So that's probably part of the problem. So there you go. There's a lot of children in that place. But it's such a blessing to see God using it. They're coming from all over the place uh, to come to that church at Rock Hill. And just think of it, they meet at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, which is an odd time. And they have to have that time because it gives us enough time to get there, travel time, but also because they have to use another facility, which is a Presbyterian church up in that area. It's a beautiful, beautiful church and all the facilities that they have access to and to use. And uh, Mark is planning on, uh, Lord willing, if we have, uh, we're going to have a financial meeting with the membership in March. And uh, it looks like if everything's on, on track, he's going to leave his job uh, in April. And uh, that's going to put him in position to finish up his ordination. And then he'll take the, the reins of the church up there in Rock Hill. Uh, he and Allie are doing such a wonderful job there at that church with all that he has already. So make sure you keep that in your prayers. I know they would appreciate it as God brings more people to the church there in Rock Hill, a great need of that area for sure. Well, tonight we return back to our study in the book of Romans, so I want you to open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, we're going to be considering tonight the necessity of the preached gospel of Christ. Romans chapter 10, verse 11 through 17 will be the setting of the text we're going to consider. We'll just be looking at a few of the verses here tonight. I know if you uh, were keeping track of it, it's been a little while since we've been in Romans. I had to look back and find out just how long it's been. It was back in November 16th. So we've been through Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's, and now we're into, what is this, February? So uh, we're going to be here a while. Romans chapter 10. Let me read verse 11 through 17. The Word of God says, For the Scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is all, over all, is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. One of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's first battles in his ministry was with hyper-Calvinism. The popular biographies that are written about him from Fullerton or Drummond do not really touch on the subject, They judged that this was along the lines of some finer theological points that don't need to be addressed. However, in the autobiography of Charles Spurgeon, he considered it very important. The attack occurred in January, at least the beginning of it occurred in January 1855 when he was 20 years old. He had just been at the church now 
at Park Street for nine months. And there was a surgence, really a very strong surge of attacks against him. And the, uh, the belief was that hyper-Calvinism was the biblical gospel. Spurgeon disagreed. Spurgeon was a Calvinist. If you're not familiar with his life, I would encourage you to read some information regarding him. He's called the Prince of Preachers. He was a soul winner. He's known for that. He preached the Word of God clearly and effectively, and many, many people came to know the Lord Jesus Christ under his ministry. But he was a Calvinist, and there was no debating that. But he also was a soul winner. He understood the necessity of the souls of men being saved and delivered from hell. And he understood the importance of preaching the gospel and keeping it accurate and preaching it with passion. And he had all of that there. He also understood what could happen if you believed in such a doctrine as hyper-Calvinism and how deadly it could be to the zeal that you might have for lost souls. A simple definition, if you're not aware of what hyper-Calvinism is, a simple definition is, is that God saves the elect through his sovereign will apart from the use of means or methods. In other words, there's no real need for evangelism. There's no real need to pray for the lost. There's no real need to uh, get information out there and to have missions because God's going to do what God's going to do, and there's no stopping him anyway. He's already planned it from eternity past, and the eternity future is set, so there's no need to worry about it. Why get involved in it at all? That's really the unbiblical view of hyper-Calvinism. In fact, one author said that it emphasizes or overemphasizes God's sovereignty and underemphasizes man's responsibility regarding salvation. Hyper-Calvinism takes the biblical doctrine of God's sovereignty and then pushes it to an unbiblical extreme, to the exclusion of what the Bible uh, clearly teaches of the responsibility of man to believe and also, to add to that, the responsibility of the church and believers to evangelize and to share the gospel, and to pray for the lost. Ian Murray, who has written a number of biographies and done a great work as far as the history of the church is concerned, wrote a book entitled Spurgeon versus Hyper-Calvinism. In that, he took four lessons from his understanding of Spurgeon's fight against hyper-Calvinism. He said, first of all, in his book, that it taught us that genuine evangelical Christian Christianity is never exclusive in spirit. Now, what he means by that is this. Whenever you look at the biblical view of Christianity, it is never exclusive in its spirit, meaning that we are desirous that all men come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is not something that we just zero in on the elect, if you will. We're desirous that all men would be saved. Secondly, he said that he learned from Spurgeon's fight with hyper-Calvinism is this, is that Spurgeon wanted to see both the divine sovereignty and the human responsibility of the sinner both taught, as the Word of God clearly teaches. But he even said that he believed gospel preaching should emphasize more the human responsibility to believe. In other words, preach to the will, preach to the man, preach to the sinner, that he needs to repent and to believe the gospel and to be saved from his sin and the wrath of God. And then number three, Ian says that he believes that a lesson we learn is that this controversy directs us to be very humble before our God. And what he means by that is this. There are issues and there are things regarding the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man 
that you and I, frankly, will never fully understand. There have been writings and books and articles and sermons and all kinds of things that have been put out there that have attempted to explain some of the difficulties between harmonizing the human responsibility of man and God's sovereignty. And all that I've read and all the men that I love and listen to have all agreed that it is really uh, something that falls short of completely satisfying our minds and our hearts. However, sometimes what happens with a hyper-Calvinist is he believes he solved all the problems because what he does is he eliminates human responsibility altogether. Everything logically works out to the fact God is sovereign. He's named all the elect. It's over with. No need to worry about anything and then move on. The problem is, as Spurgeon said, he says, with a system like that, you end up trying to attribute everything to the grace of God, which is good, but you end up putting way too much confidence in your own human reason. Sometimes there's mysteries in the Bible. I mean, we can think of a number of them right now. We've referred to them in the past, like the inspiration of Scripture. I mean, all of us know the Bible's inspired, right? We all know that the Bible is inspired of the Holy Spirit and that every single word of God's word is the word of God, but we also know it was the writing of Paul or James or John or Moses or Jeremiah and Isaiah. It was their words too. It's hard to figure that out and work that out. We also believe in the, the deity of Christ. We also believe in the humanity of Christ. And there you have the God-man, not 50-50, but 100-100. We don't have the ability to solve those mysteries. I mean, the fact that God has existed from all eternity, that is a mystery by itself to try to understand. So I think when we think that we can actually solve all these problems with our human reasoning, we find out that we fall woefully short. And that's exactly what Ian Murray said that was one of the lessons he learned from... Um, Spurgeon's fight against hyper-Calvinism. And the other one was, and should be clearly known, and we'll see that in a few moments, is that the final conclusion was that when he fought against this, he saw that hyper-Calvinism ceases to be evangelistic. It ceases to be evangelistic because it ceases to have the concern that the Bible teaches us to have regarding the souls of men. The souls of men. We all understand that. We know that. Here Ian Murray said in one occasion that whenever Calvinism is revived, hyper-Calvinism appears. Every time there's truth, there's always error. Every time someone comes along and you see a re reformation or a revival of truth, there's always the potential for error to come in and to deceive and to lead astray. However, on the other side of the camp, other than hyper-Calvinism or even Calvinism, is a very prominent and predominant view of Arminianism, which is an error that actually emphasizes the ability of the sinner to the exclusion of the sovereignty of God. It goes to the other extreme. One of the most repeated phrases that people use that adopt that particular viewpoint is the word free will. Behind that idea is, is that God would never make me do something against my will as, as is save me. Or I've heard it said like this, God would never make me love him. He would rather have people freely choose to love him rather than God, quote, make them love him against their free will. And the emphasis of that lays heavily on the freedom of men to choose Christ or to reject Christ. And what happens ultimately is this. There is the exclusion and the rejection of the sovereignty of God and the power of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, not in all cases, but in many cases, in the work of salvation. 
And one of the fruits of this is that it has produced many people in many churches who believe that their methods and their means of evangelism are the most important thing. What I mean by that is particularly the word pragmatism. We're familiar with that. It basically means whatever works is what we adopt. And that's exactly where many of the churches have gone in the last two decades. Specifically, if you think back a few decades ago with Bill Hybels and Rick Warren, whenever they adopted the approach, and Rick Warren learned it from Bill Hybels, that you determine what your church is going to do and what it's going to be and what your worship will be like by going out and interviewing the lost in the community. And you find out what the lost in the community would like in your service, then you go ahead and you bring that into your church. Therefore, they feel more comfortable and ultimately what happens is this. You end up dumbing down the gospel, you dumb down doctrine, and you make it more entertainment than it is worship. That's where it all goes, and that's exactly where it has gone in, in many circles today. And the sad reality is, is that in the end of it all, what you do is you remove the offense of the gospel. Because you know if you really preach what Jesus preached, and you really preach what the Bible says regarding these things, that in fact you're going to lose people, in some cases rather than gain. And the emphasis is, again, sadly, today, as we see the fruit of this, more on self-fulfillment rather than self-denial. Hyper-Calvinism can lead to a dead, cold orthodoxy that is void of love for the souls of men. And Arminianism can lead to an overemphasis of the means and the methods at the expense of the preaching of the cross and a clear, confrontive, compassionate gospel for lost souls. John MacArthur said this, Only lopsided and unbiblical theologies put everything on God's side and everything else on man's side. The passage we have before us tonight is really addressing one of the most important things you and I need to all understand, and that is this. God is sovereign. There's no doubt about it. Romans chapter 9 is very clear. But also, man is responsible to believe it. And also, you and I are responsible to share it. In other words, as we've already looked at in our study of Romans 8 and 9, Paul was one who clearly believed in the sovereignty of God and salvation. He taught divine election. He taught predestination, not only in Romans 8 and 9, but also in many other of the letters of the books of the New Testament that he wrote. He knew that everyone would be saved. He knew that God was sovereign and would make sure that his plan was accomplished. He knew that the elective purposes of God would be fulfilled. He also knew, as even John wrote, that every single name that was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world would be saved. He also understood that every single name that was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world would be the only ones that are saved. But Paul also taught and practiced the necessity of preaching the gospel, praying for the lost, literally giving his life for the lost. In the context of the teaching tonight that we have in our hands in Romans chapter 10, we have the topic of Israel's rejection. Israel is the one that rejected their Messiah and rejected the gospel that was preached by Jesus and the apostles. 
I mean, after Paul had given that great teaching in Romans 8 of the assurance that we have of security as a believer and that God has us wrapped up in his perfect plan and there's no way out of this plan that God has chosen and predestined and conformed us to the image of Jesus Christ. And as he says at the latter portion of Romans 8, that no one can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And then he knew there was an elephant in the room and the elephant in the room was Israel. What do you do with Israel? They were the chosen people of God. They were the ones that God had given the covenants to. They were the ones that God had directly given the commandments to and had written the entire Old Testament. And yet they rejected the very gospel that you say is the truth. They rejected the same Messiah that you claim is the Messiah. And they're in a state of unbelief. The words would even become much more profound later on whenever... The destruction of Jerusalem took place in 70 A.D., and it looked almost final. It looked like it was completely over. That's why in Romans 9, 4, and 5, Paul talks about his, right at the very beginning of Romans 9, rather, he talks about his desire for Israel that they might be saved, that he would literally give his life, he would give his soul if they could be saved. He would go to hell and be accursed for Christ if they could be saved. Those were his people. Romans 9, 4 and following says that they were the Israelites. They had the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the services of God and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, even Jesus came. I mean, what, what better group of people could you imagine than Israel that had all of this and these are the very ones out of whom the Messiah came, Christ came. How do we explain this? How do we explain their rejection? How do we explain the fact that they're literally living under the condemnation of God, literally the wrath of God, because of their unbelief? And what security do we have if Israel's not secure? How can we believe that if God chose us in eternity past that we're okay? How do we have any support of that at all? How do we even know that? That's why Romans 9 through 11 exists. That's why it's there. To explain... The mystery of Israel. What is God doing with this nation? What is God doing with this people? Paul is answering the question regarding the mystery of Israel's rejection and unbelief. Later on in chapter 11, he's going to discuss exactly how God has chosen to bring Israel back in belief. And Paul's conclusion is is that this is an amazing statement, folks, that this has been the plan all along. This is not something that, oops, oh, I had no idea they were going to reject Jesus and reject the apostles and kill Paul and had no idea. No, 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 no. What Paul writes here is that this has been and is the plan that God has instituted long ago. Look at Romans 11, 11, just for a second. Romans 11, 11. He says, I say then, have they stumbled, that is Israel, have they stumbled that they should fall? And the idea behind that is, has Israel stumbled that they should fall completely? What's his response? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Think about that just for a moment. I mean, to really think deeply about that text, that within the plan of God, 
Israel's rejection of the Messiah was actually the plan of God to bring the Gentiles in and to graft them in. And that through the grafting in of the Gentile nations, it would bring jealousy to the Israelites. I mean, I don't think that's the way we would do it, right? We might not think of it that way, but that's the way God chose to do it. So in chapter 9, he explains that not all Israel is Israel. In other words, even though there's physical Israel, not every Israelite is really a true Israelite. Just because you claim to be a son of Abraham or descendant of Abraham does not mean that you are indeed a true son of Abraham. And he goes on and makes that very clear by talking about God's sovereignty and election, specifically with Israel. He says in the earlier parts of Romans 9, it was not Ishmael that God chose, but it was Isaac. He says it was not Esau that God chose, but it was Jacob. In other words, God is the one who determines this, not man. In Romans 9, 11, he says, For the children not yet being born, talking about Jacob and Esau, not having done good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, less, but of him who calls. In other words, this has always been God's plan. This is the way God wrote it. He says in Romans 9, 15, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And we need to always remind ourselves of that, folks. God has done nothing wrong here if he doesn't save anybody. Nothing. If he sends all of us to hell, he's just and holy. Mercy teaches us that we're getting something that we don't deserve, which is heaven, love, salvation, forgiveness. And so he says he has the choice as a God who's created everything and his creation has rebelled against him. He has the choice to show mercy on whomever he will show mercy. And he's chosen to save some Israelites. He's not chosen to save all of them. As we'll see later on, there is a remnant. There's a remnant that he's chosen to save. Romans 9.22 says, What if God, here's God's plan from eternity past, looking deep into the counsels of God, what if God, or since God, because it's a first-class conditional sentence, assuming what he's saying is true, he says, What if God, warning to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, here it is, but also of the Gentiles. In other words, God literally has chosen to withhold his wrath long enough so that he could save. Not just Jews, not just Israelites, but Gentiles, he says in verse 25, he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who were not beloved. And it shall come to pass in that place where I have said of them, you are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. Some believe that refers only to Israel's future. Others believe that refers to God's selection to save Gentiles. Then he turns his attention to the personal responsibility of Israel. This is where we're going tonight, okay? You see all that sovereignty and the elected purposes of God and God's plan being worked out exactly the way he's determined it to be so. He's determined to save not only Israelites but also Gentiles or, or Greeks or pagans. And Romans 9.30 says, so what shall we say then? 
This is Romans 9.30. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. This is an astonishing statement. Now, the ones who should be the ones who believe, the Israelites, are not the ones who believe, but rather the Gentiles are the ones who believed unto righteousness because they had faith. Verse 31, but Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Here's the answer. Because they did not seek it by faith. They did not seek it by faith. They did not believe. They were unwilling to believe because they wanted to pursue it, as it says in the text in verse 32, by works of the law. They wanted to do it. They believed they could do it. They stumbled at Jesus. They stumbled at faith. They stumbled at the gospel because the gospel basically says it's done. You don't do anything. Jesus accomplished it all. Jesus satisfies the plan and purposes of God, the justice of God, and the wrath of God, and is able to save to the uttermost. So why did they stumble? Well, chapter 10, verse 2 says, first of all, they were ignorant of God's salvation. It says it. Look at verse 2. And we're just reviewing for a second because I know you forgot all this. So Romans 10, 2, Israel was ignorant of God's salvation. That by itself is an amazing statement, but they missed it. Let me just add a little thought here just for a second. Israel had the entire Old Testament. Many of them memorized much of the Old Testament, more than we ever probably will ever do, and yet they missed it. And just because we have the New Testament, sometimes I think we've got everything nailed together, and we've got everything perfect. I think there's things that are very clear and we don't miss, no doubt, but there are some things that aren't so clear that we need to be a little bit more humble about. And know that we may not have everything nailed down exactly the way we think we do. But they missed it. They missed a big one. They missed something that you don't want to miss, and that is the God of salvation. Romans 10, 2 says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they are ignorant of God's righteousness. And that is the problem. They lowered God's standard, and they elevated man's righteousness so that they actually believed that what they were doing in their law-keeping was going to satisfy God's just demands. And they missed it. And they were not willing to submit to, as it says in verse uh, 3, they were not willing to submit to the righteousness of God. So they, they were ignorant of the very God of salvation. Secondly, they were ignorant of the Christ of salvation. Look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law... For righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, Jesus satisfies all that the law requires. We don't have to try to do better or to obey more laws or to make sure, quote, we don't sin. Jesus Christ is the one who has satisfied all the demands of the law. And whenever we believe in him, that satisfaction is accredited to us. And then third, Israel is ignorant of faith. They stumbled here. They stumbled because to them it was works. It wasn't faith. It was all works. That's why he says in Romans 10, 9, and 10 that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice what he says. If you confess and believe, you're going to be saved. Now, I hope 
you're paying attention because what we've been talking about on Sunday mornings clarifies what true saving faith is. We're not talking about just believing the facts like easy believism. We're talking about a genuine willingness to believe and submit to Christ as Savior and Lord, that kind of belief. And even here in this text, it even says in verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth the who, not Jesus Savior only, but Jesus as Lord. That means he's your king, he's your ruler, he's your boss, he's your master. And you believe in your heart with the depth of your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be sozo, you will be delivered from the wrath of God, from the justice of God. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You believe and you get righteousness from God, not your righteousness, but from God you get righteousness. And with your mouth you confess what has already happened in your heart. Because what has happened in your heart's real and it's going to come out. That's the way it works. Also in chapter 9 verse uh, 32, again, just to refer to that one more time, they were ignorant of faith that says this, why did they uh, miss the salvation? Because they did not seek it by faith, verse 32 of Romans 9. They missed it. They didn't understand the God of salvation, the Christ of salvation, or the faith of salvation. One last one that was a major stumbling block for them that the entire book of Acts primarily deals with, and that is they stumbled at the extent of salvation. They thought it was all about Israel, and Israel was the only one that was chosen of God, and God was not going to save. They literally missed the Old Testament. The Old Testament's full of references to how God would save not only Israel, but would save the nations. The nations would be saved. Romans ten eleven, for the scripture says, Whoever believes... All the ones or everyone believing on him will not be put to shame for there's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. I've told you before, we went into that in detail that, you know, for us, that's not that big of a deal. For the Israelite, it was a very big deal. For them to even consider the fact that God would be gracious to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the pagan nations, to the idolaters, that God would save any of these people was the most profound stumbling block of all. And yet that's exactly what Paul is telling us, that God's plan is a little bit bigger than you think. It's bigger than Israel. It's bigger than the elect of Israel. It's more than that. It includes the Gentile nations. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be, there's the word again, delivered or saved, verse 13 says. This was a big problem for them. And this is so critical for us because this passage we have before us now helps us to guard against these errors that are referred to earlier. And that is this, that the passage we have before us teaches us that God's desire and his desire for Israel is bigger than just the nation. It goes all the way to the nations of the world and that God's going to save by men and women calling on the Lord from all nations. And Paul knows this. But he also knows that God has chosen the means by which that will occur. And that's critical. That's critical. In other words, he's not only chosen to save the Gentiles and the Jews, but he's also chosen how he's going to do it. And that's where we go tonight because that's exactly what he's talking about. And it will, it will guard us against the errors of hyper-Calvinism. And it will also guard us against the errors of pragmatism and softening the message and toning down the offense of the cross. 
And what many don't understand, and this is probably one of the most common questions in reform circles regarding the doctrine of election and predestination is, well, if God has already chosen those who would be saved, then why in the world should we evangelize? Why should we even be worried about sharing the gospel? Why should we pray for the lost? And the reason is very simple. God has not only ordained the end, but he's ordained the means to get there. It's just like you planning a trip. If you were to plan to go to Florida tomorrow, I can bet that you will do this. You will determine what car you're going to drive if you have more than one. You're going to determine that you have a full tank of gas. You're going to make sure that you have enough food or money to stop along the way. You're going to know what roads you're going to take to avoid certain traffic. So you're going to plan the destination, but you're also going to plan all the details to get there. Well, God's no different than that. He plans the exact end of all things, but he plans the details to get to the end. And he's sovereign over both of them. He's sovereign over both of them. And Paul taught this. He taught this more than in Romans 10. He taught this in many other passages of the Bible. Like, listen to this one in 2 Timothy 2.9. It says, Paul suffers trouble, he says, as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But then he says, the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they may obtain salvation. In other words, I'm suffering here in these chains, but that doesn't stop the word of God. I'm willing to suffer and endure all these things and go through all of these troubles so that the elect that aren't saved yet will get saved. He knew the means. He didn't kick back and say, hey, I'm going to hang out here at Troas and we'll just you know, enjoy our time. God's going to do what God's going to do. No, he understood that he was part of that plan. He understood that. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant or a slave to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. And to those who are without the law, I became as one as who is without the law, that I might win those who are without the law. And to the weak I became weak, and to the mighty I became Mighty, and I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. He wasn't talking about compromise. He was talking about being the means to win people to Christ. Acts 9.15 records the conversion of Paul. It says, the Lord himself said to him, go. He's talking about uh, the man who was going to go and find Paul who had been blinded. He said, go for he is chosen a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. Paul was a chosen vessel of God to bear the name before the Gentiles. Why? I mean, if it's already fixed, why worry about it? No, God's plan that Paul would be the means to get the very name of Christ to those Gentiles that he would save. Romans fifteen seventeen says, Therefore I have, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. But then he says this, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me. And that's the important word, that these things were accomplished through me. God's working his plan that he's already predetermined through Paul. Galatians 2.8 says, for he is he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, that's the Jews, also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. It says it over and over again throughout the New Testament. There are other examples that we could go into, but 
we don't have time tonight. So let's just finish up this text. This is so simple. I just want to amplify a few things about it. And the first is this, the requirement of our mission. The requirement of our mission. Picking up in verse 13 again for just the reading of the context. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, right? Everyone calling on the name of the Lord shall be delivered from the wrath of God. That's the word for saved. So then Paul says this. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Now, this is very simple, isn't it? Very simple, very obvious, yet profound. And listen to this. It carries tremendous weight for our ministry and our mission. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. We, that is you and I as believers and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, are the means that God has chosen to get the gospel to sinners so that they can be saved. I mean, I think all of us would agree with this. He could drop an angel out of heaven and do that, couldn't he? He could have 500 of them flutter around all over the place and start speaking the gospel. But he's chosen to use you. He's chosen to use me. Wherever we are, whatever people we come in contact with, our family, our relationships, our work relationship, whatever they are, God has put us there sovereignly for the purpose of being the gospel and sharing the gospel with those people. We are the means. Now, what is also important about this, and this is what is the sobering part about it. This text clearly teaches us that they will not be saved unless you go and do it. How about that? Do you know that this is one of the primary drivers of the mission movement? Missionaries and the great missionary movements in the history of the church were started by men who loved the doctrines of grace and Calvinism. And they knew that these depraved, dead-in-sin sinners who were blind and unable to see could only be saved by a sovereign work of God. But they also knew this, that God had already promised that he was going to save out of the nations. So if they went to the island where the headhunters were, guess what? There has to be someone there. That God has chosen to save and they would go and they would spend sometimes years, sometimes spend their life there so that they could come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord. They believed in the end, but they also believed that they were the means to the end. And they also believed accurately that unless you and I go, they're not going to hear. And if they don't hear, they can't be saved. I think that's what was so dangerous about Years ago, the wider mercy view that was taught, that basically said that there are islands out there of people, nations of people that have never heard the gospel, and as long as we leave them alone and never give them the gospel, then they're going to be okay because they're not held responsible for the gospel. So let's never preach to them so they can go to heaven. That's the wider mercy view. Still some hold it today even. Problem with that is you just never read Romans 1, apparently, because creation by itself is enough to accuse you, and you're without excuse just by the very revelation of creation. So that's not something we believe, and that's not something we teach. So he says this in verse 14, How shall they then call on him in whom they have not believed? The ability to call on the Lord's the goal. 
That's what we're after. We're after the goal of enabling people to call on the Lord. And what was that? If we learned last time, it basically had to do with the ability to have right worship with God. In the Old Testament, to call on the name of the Lord often referred to worship, adoration, praise, extolling God, his majesty, his power, his holiness. The word epikaleo is the word here. It basically means to call on the deity for any purpose. In the Old and the New Testament, it referred to calling on God for aid or to call on Christ for aid in the New Testament. The point is, is that the goal of all of our efforts is to enable God to have true worshipers. And the only way they can be true worshipers is by believing. You don't get to worship God if you don't believe. By the way, in this text that I just read to you, notice it again. They cannot call on the Lord if they do not believe. They cannot believe unless they hear. They cannot hear unless it is preached. And they cannot preach to be heard unless they're sent. All the verbs in this text here that I just read are all aorist verbs which refer to a moment in time, a historical, completed action, which are fine. But it's interesting to note that the one word in that text that is not an aorist verb is the word that is translated in your Bible, preacher. Uh, The ESV says preaching, which is actually a better rendering of it in my personal opinion, opinion, because the word preached here in this text is, or preacher, is a present participle. And it's better to be understood like this. They cannot believe unless they hear. They cannot hear unless it is being preached. Over and over and over again. Preach, 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 preach. Now, just before we go any further with that, I want to just remove this from your thinking. The preaching here is not just what I'm doing that we're talking about here. The word keruso simply means to herald, to proclaim, to speak forth, to announce publicly. So that doesn't mean, hey, as long as as we've got the paid preacher, we're doing what we're supposed to do. No, actually, this word opens the door for every single believer to be doing exactly what I'm talking about here. We're all responsible to herald forth and to announce the gospel of Christ. We are all to be preaching in that sense. We are all heralds of the gospel. And we need to be doing it all the time. That's his point. They can't call on the Lord and they can't believe unless somebody's preaching. Think about the enormity of that, folks, the responsibility that we have as a church, as a believer, that God has placed that in our hands to be faithful to do as a believer, to share the gospel with the lost. It's a tremendous thing. Tremendous. Nobody believes. Listen to this. Nobody believes without someone preaching the gospel to them or giving it to them. Or them getting their hands on it. In some cases, it may be just simply in written form. I remember years ago of a man that I had a chance to get to know. He was part of the Gideons. And uh, the Gideons uh, would come to your church often and share about their Bible ministries. They would be the ones that would place the Bibles in the hotel rooms, which you may have a hard time finding nowadays. But anyway, he said he came to Christ. He was saved just by reading one of the little small New Testaments. And it was just the gospel of John, he said, he read. The power of the word of God by itself, if we can just get it out there so people can hear it and read it, is so important to us all. 
In Luke 24, 46, it says this, Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead a third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, all ethnos, beginning in Jerusalem. Why? Because that's the only way they're going to hear, the only way they're going to believe, and the only way they will ever be able to call on the Lord. Acts 26.15, again, talking about Paul's um, conversion and how God was going to use him. And this is Paul's own testimony. So it says this. So Paul says, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You remember that, right? But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you, Paul says, or God says to Paul, Jesus says to Paul, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom now I send you. Why does he send them to them? He sends them to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and the inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In other words, what's the means here? It's Paul. And God is using him as a minister and a witness. And God is sending him forth to preach the gospel so that God can use the word of God to open their eyes to the truth. 2 Timothy 4.17 says, The Lord stood with me, Paul again. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear, that they might hear. Romans 10, 15 says, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? That's an important point, right? We all, you know, one of the things I had trouble with years ago, you remember when PTL was around? How many of y'all went to the PTL up in near Charlotte? Rock Hill area, rode the roller coasters. <laughs> anyway, we, there was a time period that Christianity really got wrapped up in a lot of this, where we were all about our own stuff. We're all about our own theme parks. We're all about our own gatherings, our own fellowships, our own restaurants, our own businesses, and everything else. And before long, I began to notice that Christians always hung around Christians. You know what? That's not going to help us to reach the lost. We need to make friends with the lost. We need to talk to our neighbors who are lost. We need to make friends with those at our work that are lost. Because you're sent. You're not sent to the PTL or the other Christian gatherings that are all just about that and that's all they're about. Nothing wrong with getting together as believers. I'm not saying that. Nothing wrong with having fellowship. I enjoy that. But the point is, is that if that's all we do and the only people we have interaction with are believers... How in the world are we ever sent? And he's not talking about just the missionary who goes into full-time mission work. He's not talking about that. He's talking about all of us. How shall they preach the gospel unless they are sent? We are all sent. If you don't know that for sure, I would encourage you to go back and read the great statements at the end of the gospels, the great commissions. We're all called to make disciples of the nations. Every one of us. Listen to what he says in Romans 10, 15. He says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. 
Now, just to be clear, the emphasis here is not how beautiful your feet are. Because most of us don't have pretty feet. And thank, thankfully, we don't do foot washings here. And probably never will. But the point is, is that that's not the emphasis. The feet are that which bring the good news. They're beautiful because of what they bring, not because of what they are, right? This passage, by the way, comes from Isaiah chapter 52. There's also a reference to that same idea in Nahum chapter 1. But in Isaiah chapter 52, the context of that is that God is being praised for his deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt, from Assyria, and Babylon. And in that context, Isaiah begins to talk about not just what God's going to do in the reestablishment of Jerusalem after Babylon, but what he's going to do, listen to this, in the future with the salvation of the nations. This is amazing. Listen to the text. I just want to read a section of it to you. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaims peace and brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices they shall sing together, and they shall see eye to eye. When the Lord brings back Zion, break forth into joy, sing together your wasted places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people and has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm, and the holy arm is the power of God. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, not just to Israel, not just to the Jews, but to all the nations, all the peoples. We must never, please understand this, we must never minimize the missionary outreaches of the churches. What's about to happen in March, whenever the three of our men go over to India, is no small thing. It costs a boatload of money to get over there, no doubt. But what is being done over there, when you go into the villages and you're sharing the gospel with groups of people who've never heard the name of Jesus Christ, that's what this is talking about. But also, not only that, we're talking about going to our nation, right? Our nation's off track big time. You can forget the Bible Belt. The Bible Belt's sunk. I mean, what we basically have is a bunch of religious people in the Bible Belt that don't know Christ and don't know the Word of God and don't know the gospel, of course. So we never want to minimize the missionary outreach of the church. And while this passage primarily refers to Israel, it applies to all the lost souls around the world. One last point as we close out this evening. Not only should we concern ourselves with the requirement of our mission, but also the responsibility to the message. Now we're going to skip verse 16 just for tonight. We'll come back to it next Wednesday evening because it'll fit better with the rest of the text in the chapter. But I just want to finish up with verse 17, which is discussing the point that we need to have our responsibility concerning our message. Look at it again in verse 17. So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God or the word of Christ. And the literal rendering of that text is, so then the faith. There's a definite article there. So then the faith, out of hearing, or out from hearing, it says, and 
Also, the hearing, definite article there, is through the words of Christ or the word of Christ or the word about Christ or the word about God. And what that is telling us is probably one of the most profound statements in all of the word of God, and that is this, that faith comes by hearing, listen to this, the correct message about Christ. Okay? His point is this, if you're going to see souls saved, you have to give them the words of God about Jesus. You say, well, I'm going to go back and read the Beatitudes or rather the uh, genealogies. Well, there's nothing wrong with the genealogies. They're the word of God, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about actually that hearing, saving faith is, is the idea. Saving faith comes from hearing an accurate message about Jesus Christ. So if we fumble it at this point, if we mess it up, if we don't correctly communicate who Jesus is and what Jesus did on the cross for sinners, then we mess up the entire message, which ends up producing a whole lot of people who don't have saving faith. Now, I'm not saying that God can't override our ignorance because I'm sure he did many years at my beginning of ministry when I didn't properly communicate it clearly. And sometimes you may have heard an, a, a gospel message that would have been less than adequate like, for instance, maybe you were hearing someone who says you must believe in Christ and they never talked about repentance or anything like that. But like what MacArthur said on one occasion, if you hear a message that may not necessarily be all of the message, ask yourself a question. Was I repenting? Because the Spirit of God has the ability, thankfully, to override our lack of accuracy many times, right? But that does not necessarily mean that we should just say, we don't have to care about that at all. We need to make sure that we properly communicate because he says here in verse 17, so then the faith, what faith? The saving faith comes by the hearing. What hearing? The hearing of the word of Christ. Now, some of the uh, texts say word of God. There are a number of manuscripts that say word of God, Greek manuscripts. But according to the scholars who do this kind of work, they believe that the preponderance of evidence supports the word of Christ. But the word word's important. It's the word rhema, not logos. Logos refers more to the general statement of God's word, a general revelation. It can refer to the written word or the spoken word. But rhema also narrows it down specifically to a specific statement about Christ. It often refers to that which is spoken about something or someone. But here, he's saying you've got to give a specific message about Jesus Christ. Listen, a church that exalts Jesus, a church that preaches Christ, will always see the effective work of the Spirit of God in producing faith. There's always going to be that. Let me close out with a text, and I think you'll find this interesting. Look at Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. This is a very familiar story to us because we know the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Both of them die. The rich man goes to hell. Lazarus ends up in paradise in Abraham's bosom. And it says in verse 27, I'm picking up in the story right there, Luke chapter 16, verse 27. Then he said, this is the man in hell, the rich man. I beg you, therefore, Father Abraham, that you would send to him, send him to my father's house. 
For I have five brothers that he may testify to them. In other words, send Lazarus there so that my brothers can hear about this place of torment. Verse 29, listen to what Abraham said. He said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Wow. So much for Andy Stanley's view of the resurrection and unhitching from the Old Testament. What you have here is what is being said by Jesus himself is this. The Old Testament prophets are enough. The word of God. Let them hear them. Let them hear them. Now listen to what he says. And he said, no, 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 Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. That's what many think today. If someone would just resurrect from the dead, they will hear them. What if you were there to see the resurrection of Jesus Christ? You would repent, right? Well, most, most did not. And then he goes on and says, But Abraham says to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. What is this point? Faith comes by hearing a specific message about Jesus Christ. Do not let anyone minimize the missionary efforts of the church and the gospel proclamation by trying to say, hey, you don't have miracles, signs, and wonders, and if you had miracles, signs, and wonders, many more would believe. No. The Bible is very, very clear on this. Very clear. And so we don't want to minimize our missionary work. We're all called and sent so that they can hear the gospel and believe and become callers upon the Lord. And we're going to give them the right message without compromise and not minimize the gospel or the offense of the cross so that they can be saved by the right message of Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, we'll pick up next time together on Wednesday. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you, Lord, for the clarity of this. And Lord, forgive us for the times we have not been faithful to share the word of God with those around us. The very power and instrument that you have given to us is readily in our hands, readily available on our phones, available in print in many forms. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to make sure that we are faithful to do so. Help us, Lord, wherever we go to leave information about the gospel, to leave tracts, to leave information, to discuss the gospel with people we know so that they can become true worshipers of God and call upon the Lord. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in the missionary work and faithful in the Christ that we love and also, Lord, to be accurate with our gospel message and not compromise in any way. Pray you'd keep us safe as we go home tonight and bring us back on the next appointed time on the Lord's Day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.